Meditation. 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 Depending on the quality of my mind. You know, there's good days and bad days. I mean, I feel like the waterfall of thoughts. Every now and then, a nice calm. I can't think of anything. This is Meditation in the City. The Shambhala New York Podcast. And I'm Dave, your host. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Today on the podcast, a regular contributor, vegan Aharonian. I'm sure you've heard many of his talks before. If you haven't, you know, we've been doing this podcast for a few years now. Go back into our library, listen to your favorite teachers, listen to talks. I find listening to talks that I really connect to uh, repeatedly really helps absorb a lot of information that just kind of flew by me the first time. So uh, there are many talks in our library, including several by today's contributor, Vegan Aharonian. He has been a longtime practitioner and teacher in the Shambhala Buddhist tradition. This was a talk he gave uh, just this past week uh, on basic goodness. What actually drives us to better ourselves? What drives us to want to meditate, to want to connect to knowledge and practices which aim to make us better? What drives us to do that? Well, that is the topic of today's talk by Vegan Aharonian. Visit our website, nymbala.org, for all of our upcoming courses and weekend retreats, our introductory meditation course, which is called Meditation in Everyday Life. It's a four-week course, uh, four weeknights or afternoons in the daytime version of the course. You learn everything you need to establish a home meditation practice, basic and ongoing meditation instruction, troubleshooting, common obstacles you may encounter, just everything you need to sort of get yourself set up to uh, launch your meditation journey. The next daytime iteration of the course begins October 2nd. Uh, the next evening iteration begins Thursday evenings, October 4th. Uh, for more information and to register, go to our website, ny.chambala.org, and click Classes and Programs, and scroll down to Meditation in Everyday Life. Okay, here is Vegan Aharonian. One important, maybe subconscious reason why we come to a place like Shambhala is because somewhere subconsciously, as I said, we realize that we can be, we can manifest, not be, we can manifest better than we normally manifest. We want to um, grow some uh, good um, sprouts out of ourselves. We hope that our practice and the teachings will help us gain a bigger perspective, become better people in one way or, or another. And <clears throat> what's important here is because we subconsciously realize that we can have a better quality life in some way. We can be maybe less aggressive, less irritable, less discursive, uh, more present, more engaged. Um, I was hoping actually you'll bring all those things so I don't preach to you. But... Um, but we uh, we realize that we possess the potentiality. 
that's where I'm going to. We possess a potentiality that is not fully developed, and so we want to develop it. And that potentiality in Shambhala is called basic goodness. Some of you who have been here before, heard this before. This is the fundamental, most important principle that Shambhala teachings are based on. That fundamentally, each of us, we collectively, possess, own, are that basic goodness that wants to be kind to everybody, to ourselves, that want to produce good, that wants to be pleasant to others. We don't want to be aggressive, we don't want to be greedy, we don't want to be angry, we don't want to be um, irritable, right? When we feel those things, we think something is wrong, I have to fix this. Why do we think so? Because we have that potentiality, the desire to be good. And what's very important here, that because we do, we all have that potentiality, we can be proud of who we are. Even though we do get angry, irritable, aggressive, and on and on and on, unfair, manipulative, uh, anxious, we do have the potentiality that doesn't want to be so. We can trust on that. We can trust that that potentiality will motivate us to come to places like this, work on ourselves. Uh, because of that potentiality, we are not happy with ourselves when we do get aggressive. So that's the most important principle that the potentiality will not go away. The basic goodness is there no matter what we do, how bad we are, we still have the basic goodness. We still can go back to that basic goodness and have that sense of dignity and self-respect that even though I make mistakes in life, I, I am okay. I am a decent human being. And then if we are confident in that sense of being a decent human being that has the potential to develop that goodness into every aspect of our life. It gives us a lot of motivation and energy and confidence and <clears throat> driving force to keep moving, keep going. It, it is uh, helping to deal with uh, hopelessness, depression, um, loss of faith, Self-criticism comes from out of that, uh, our being unhappy how we hold ourselves, right? And so that self-criticism normally also is, often is, uh, cutting our energy. We are diminishing ourselves. Being realistic about health is normal and healthy. It's not that no matter what we do, we have to pat our shoulder. I'm a good person. No, we make mistakes and we should see that, but it shouldn't cause depression or uh, loss of energy and motivation to move forward. So no matter what happens, how uh, unpleasant the situation is we are in, we might 
lose job, things might go wrong in many different ways, relationships fall apart. If we remember that fundamentally I am a decent human being, even though I made tons of mistakes in my life, apparently, I, I, I am a decent human being, I can keep going. <coughs> Anybody disagrees? Any protests? No? Good. <clears throat> and now the next thing we should realize is if, if I'm so good and everybody else is so good, why uh, life doesn't feel so joyous all the time? Yes? And it's a, it's a big question. There are many ways to answer that or, or many aspects to that question. I'll uh, talk about one of them for now. Um, is uh, through some complications of life. <laughs> we are uh, born in certain social environments that have its traditions healthy and unhealthy. We are brought up with certain views of what's wrong, what's right, how things should be, uh, what's fair, what's unfair. Some of those views are healthy and productive. Some of views are um, based on stereotypes, narrow-mindedness, um, wrong views. But we brought up, we were brought up by family, by society, uh, some things we are born with. And because of that, we keep falling into that um, narrow-mindedness maybe is the best of description out of the ones I listed. When we don't perceive things directly as they are, we are... Um, seeing them through our lenses of narrow mind, uh, superstitious sometimes uh, views. And then we perceive things uh, from that ego point of view. Our ego consists of those views, expectations, fears, and we perceive th things from that perspective. And then, <clears throat> Uh, they become either sources of irritation or source, sources of fear or anger. We want to protect ourselves, our territory. We can think of a person as uh, expressing aggression towards ourselves when, in fact, they are being in fear and panic and that's how their panic manifests. But we don't see them in panic. We see that they are aggressive towards us. Right? If we could be, if in, at that moment, let's take that example, somebody is aggressive towards us, um, yells at us. If at that moment we think there is nothing fundamentally wrong with me, I have the basic goodness, I'm a good individual, I might have made a mistake, maybe I said something wrong, could be I, I was a trigger, possible, but fundamentally I'm okay. If I made a mistake, I can figure it out. Maybe I didn't even make a mistake. Maybe I just said something that for that person is 
a very sensitive point. It reminded him something else. I don't know why, and I don't really have to know why. But um, aggression happens, and let me look through it and see if I can help the situation rather than being aggressive in return. Right? So if we had, if we weren't brought up with sense of territory, desire to protect ourselves, um, then we could have that bigger view that is based on basic goodness and act out of desire to be helpful rather than desire to be the righteous one. Once again, all of us have a set of views, expectations that closes up our mind and we function out of that closed state. We call it cocoon. When we don't interact with the world directly, we are interacting uh, with our own stories that we tell ourselves about the world about specific situation, about specific person, uh, event, incident, we don't look at it directly, we make up a story about it. <clears throat> and then deal with that story. So that's the second important aspect of Shambhala teachings you need to know. And then another, <clears throat> anything you want to say about this by the way? Yes. Uh, isn't there a difference between aggression um, and someone being aggressive and someone also hurting you? And when someone hurts you, um, the best reaction to protect yourself, and maybe in Buddhism, I'm a Buddhist, we believe that um, we're supposed to practice for the benefit of others. Uh, and the best way to resolve someone, well, to react against someone who is not only being aggressive but also hurting you, is to detach from them and no longer, um, no longer even engage with them because it prevents you from achieving whatever you're supposed to achieve as a, you know, as a uh, Buddhist. So I don't understand so much what, um, what you have just said about I, I don't think it's so easy or so simple, um, you know, when someone is aggressive. Uh, aggression is one thing, but if they're hurting you, you know, it's also, it's, it's, um, it, it's a big difference. Okay, thank you. Thank you for bringing that up. Let's, let's dissect that in several ways. When you're saying hurting you, you mean what they say you hurts. Is that what you mean? Yeah, let's well, I, I wouldn't keep say the what they say with their actions, what their actions hurt you. Forget words. Okay, okay. That's that's makes a difference. Their actions are hurting you, not your um, mentally, but there are some physical, I don't know, they are putting some limits of what you can do, for example. <coughs> Now, when that happens, um, 
the normal reaction, the usual, not normal, the, the frequent reaction is to fight back in some way. Right? You get angry in return, you start figuring out how do I um, gain back my freedom, let's call it freedom, in in certain way that they are limiting it. There is nothing wrong with trying to figure out what to do. Uh, what, uh, what can be problematic and make it difficult to find a good solution is when we start uh, <clears throat> getting angry at the other person. When we uh, the other person does something that is uh, hurting, as you described, not insulting, that, that is a separate story. Hurting physically, they are doing, I don't know, making difficult, let's say it's a coworker that makes your work situation more difficult. Um, so you don't need to be defenseless. That's not what I'm saying. But to be able to, to deal with the situation in a healthy manner, we want to see what is the fear that made the other person act like that. That's one of the, one of the possibilities. If we come from a state that I'm fundamentally a good person and the, and the other person is fundamentally good too, but there is something that went wrong, maybe they built a storyline that is not reflected, reflecting reality, maybe I did, usually both did something that wasn't healthy, and that created animosity and desire for the other person to act against you. Right? If we look at it not from point of view that that's the enemy and I need to defend myself. If we look at the situation, something went wrong, I want to figure this out for the best of both of us. Then it opens a lot of freedom of thought, we become more resourceful, we don't eat ourselves with anger, we find a lot of energy and um, dignity to deal with it in a healthy manner. It might work, this time might not work, but either way we become a bigger and stronger and more benevolent person and we don't suffer as much. We know something went wrong and this time I couldn't figure it out perhaps, but you are not becoming, become small-minded, irritable, aggressive person. You, you, have, you are a bigger you. Okay, I, something went wrong, maybe I triggered something, maybe I didn't and that person had some other problem that manifested that way, but you are not becoming this desirous to uh, fight back person. And most likely what you do will have better benefit for, for future. Does that make sense? Do you want to... There are some instances where you, I think separation is just the only solution. And, um, you know, it, there, there really is no, I mean, we're also only human, we have limits. <laughs> right. So, 
Yeah, yeah, too, it's true. There might be situations that uh, you realize this is, you can't figure this out or there is too much to clear and it will be better for, for both of you. That's an, an important motivational thing. Is it just good for me or I think it will be better for both of us to, to be separate? That actually leads to the to the third big uh, topic, and that will be the the last concept that I'll bring up today, is that uh, Shambhala teachings <coughs> uh, direct us, lead us towards building an enlightened society, and so the the situation that we just discussed, we could think of how would people in an enlightened society try to deal with the situations like this? When, uh, when you hear enlightened society first time, <clears throat> you might think of some idealized society when, where everybody is perfect, everybody is kind to each other, everybody is always um, at your service, at each other's service, service, uh, it never rains, no earthquakes, uh, right? That's the ideal world we all dream to live in. <clears throat> but what uh, Shambhala teachings mean by enlightened society is not a perfect society, and, and perfect is a weird notion. As soon as you end up in a society where there are no earthquakes and everybody is fed, and uh, then uh, you pretty soon come up with uh, some other imperfections. Right? If, uh, if forget enlightened society for a second. If you uh, put up a list of everything you want to happen for yourself, and tomorrow everything you put on that list becomes a reality, a week later you'll come up with a new list that it's not good enough, right? And so this movement towards perfection is a never-ending path. And so the same thing goes with, uh, with an enlightened society. Enlightened society is not where everything is perfect. Enlightened society is where everybody is driven by their trust in their basic goodness and the intention. What, what's the driving force of the enlightened society is the intention, the motivation. Everybody wants to be in sync with their basic goodness, works on it, and helps everybody else to do the same. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but everybody is trying. And everybody knows that everybody else is trying, so there is this positive attitude that we want to help each other to move along. We do know that everybody was born with and brought up with some ego, some cocoon, some fear, some limitations. And we are willing to work with each other's cocoons. The willingness is what is the driving force of the enlightened society. The willingness to work with everything. The readiness to go forward.
But we are human, right? We are all human. I'm coming back to that. We have our limitations. We are not enlightened. There are things we can do. There are things we cannot do. There are limits we can cross. There are limits we are unable to. <clears throat> Being gentle and accept who we are, that's part of the basic goodness. We, we need to know where our limits. There are, there are difficult relationships that we can, we um, have enough energy, motivation to try to repair. And there might be situations when they say, in this lifetime, this is too big, I can't handle this. I want to leave this alone and leave this relationship. I can't handle this this time. This is too big. I'm a human being. Any thoughts you have about this? I just like what you said about being gentle. Um, just how important it is to be gentle with your self-criticism. Um, I think self-criticisms come consistently on a daily basis. I know at work I did something wrong and, oh, why did you do that wrong? You should have done that. It's as if perfection seems to be the right way, you know. Um, we live in a society that's so driven on efficiency, you know, so it seems to be kind of programmed into our behaviors to just aim for perfection. I think that's where the stress lies, you know. But the gentleness you mentioned, I think, is so key. Just being gentle with ourselves. Uh, hopefully I could continually remember that. Be gentle, be gentle. Because there's always that voice of doubt that just comes. It doesn't die, you know, it just comes, you know. Uh, but the gentleness, I like that, yeah. Thank you. You reminded me um, a story. <clears throat> um, many years ago, uh, Dalai Lama, asked, uh, he had a gathering of the Western Buddhist teachers, and he asked them what's the most difficult thing to teach in the West. And uh, one of them said that no matter what we teach, uh, no matter how much we teach, um, that you don't have to be hard on yourself, not to be too critical of yourself. The uh, audience, the Western audience, uses that to be self-critical. In other words, now you, when you catch yourself being self-critical, you become critical of yourself for being critical about yourself. Why am I criticizing myself? I shouldn't be criticizing. Why am I so critical? Stop doing it. Right? That's self-criticism on self-criticism. Um, so you were talking about um believing in your basic goodness and allowing yourself to have the energy um, to move forward as opposed to staying into a cocoon or trying to, to open up. And I'm wondering um, if you can talk about that in relationship to being gentle and dealing with self-criticism or doubt. And what is the relationship or how do you see um, the process of trying to open up and move away from being in a cocoon to moving forward. So doubts and self-criticism you mentioned are 
parts of that um, parts of the cocoon, if I use uh, Shambhala terminology. So we tend to be self-critical because we were uh, brought up in a society that tends to be self-critical, expecting success in certain ways. Again, in some groups, success is measured by your financial well-being. In some social layers, uh, the level of education is a measure of success, right? In some other societies, it's a level of family uh, development, whatever. But there are measures of success that we are, we are brought up with, and we become self-critical if we don't live up to that those measures. How do we deal with that? So we, for the first thing is to realize what is the problem. That is always the first step. If those who are familiar with the AA, the 12th step, the first thing is to realize you are an alcoholic. Or the first thing is to realize I have a cocoon in, in, in when we speak about this, right? I have a set of views that are limiting my life, my ability to move forward. That's a huge, very important step. If I use, by the way, the, the uh, general Buddhist language, that would be realizing that life is full of suffering. Now, once we realize that uh, we have the cocoonish way of thinking, perceiving and reacting, now we become interested in looking at those behaviors. When we are meditating, by the way, that's the tool that teaches us to do that. What do we do when we meditate? When we notice the thought, we let go of the thought and come back to our reality, to present moment. We are letting go of those storylines. Storylines are the, what make up the cocoon, the stories we tell ourselves, I'm not good enough in many million various ways we tell ours a story how did i didn't do this right didn't behave correctly i wish i do this this we, we when we think about the future we are dreaming of a better future typically or we're afraid of something negative to happen so we wrap ourselves in all these thoughts when reality happens right now and here we constantly live in some imaginary reality either in the future or in the past so when we are meditating we're trying to let go and come back to actual reality and that's the answer to your question how do we move forward we come back we drop the storylines we drop our stereotypical thinking and look at things as they are happening right now when somebody um, somebody you are interacting regularly and they tend to irritate you by Tone of voice. No, let's let's give some something more real. They say something that irritates you, or do something that I can't come up with a good example. Yes, look at their cell phone all the time. Thank you. You are talking to them, and they are right. 
Now you think, why I never can talk to this person? Yesterday I was trying to tell them this and that they were doing this, and they, and then uh, let's say I'll give make it even more specific. Let's say it's my son, although he doesn't do it that much. But let's say I'm talking to my son, I'm telling him something, and he's on his phone. And I think, yes, I told him to do this, he was on his phone, he forgot to do it, and then this and that went wrong. He does it every day, all the time. I'm tired of telling him he will grow up a person who can't hear people, his life is in the phone, right? That's a story I'm developing. What happened is right now he, I was, he was on the phone, and, but, but I developed this in the whole tragedy of his whole life, right? <laughs> And so I'm angry because he's ruining his life. I, why did I waste all my life raising him up when he's going to throw it out into the cell phone? <laughs> right? It's a storyline. Uh, maybe absurd, but uh, nevertheless, right? You can come up with uh, more realistic ones in your life. Instead of trying to figure out how to bring his attention to me or deal with the current moment, what happens right now, Right, so that that's the path we want to be. Maybe there is actually something important he's typing. Maybe I should just ask what's going on. Why is he so focused on the phone? And maybe it will turn out he's responding to his teacher. I don't know, and which is important. So being engaged with the reality, what hap what uh, happens right now is the maybe the first thing, well, the first thing I said, realizing that we tend to be stuck in our cocoon. Once we know that and we are curious about our cocoon, not depressed about our cocoon, but interested in, in what ways do I limit my freedom? I want to know, I want to investigate, I want to see my thoughts, I want to Observe my thoughts. That's what we'll learn to do when we meditate indirectly. Whenever you come back from a thought, whether you want it or not, you notice what the thought was. You learn what thoughts tend to steal your attention. You, you learn your cocoon. Through that, we are learning who we actually are. Even though instruction is very simple, come back. When you come back, there is a lot of important work that happens. So we, we see who we are, we see our life better, and, we, and the freedom of coming back might give us energy to come up with something new. We can see, uh, find a better solution, some insight, is, if I use our technical language, come up with some insight on who we are, on our life, on a specific situation. So you discussed there how the way to, to escape from this cocoon is through meditation practice. So as somebody who isn't very knowledgeable about meditation, I'm just curious how the Shambhala approach differs from other types of meditation. And is there a reason why you chose Shambhala practice versus another type of, of practice? There are many techniques to meditate. You are referring to different techniques yeah. to meditate, right? Uh, and they can have different purposes. Uh, for example, if a technique tells you to uh, lie down, turn on um, slow, nice music, or I don't know, sound of water, and visualize yourself on a beach, on a mountain, and and on and on and on, and relax your body, that meditation has a purpose to relax you. Maybe it helps to deal with stress for that 
moment, for that day. That's a different purpose and a different technique. I have no criticism to that technique, but it has a different purpose. When we apply this technique, shamatha, vipassana technique, mindfulness awareness, we are training the mind to be uh, awake and present and engaged. We are not trying to visualize ourselves in a nicer place. We're trying to come back to reality as it unfolds now. We're learning to live the life we have as opposed to dream about the life we don't have. That's the big difference. And there are many variations of this technique too that have the same purpose too. Did I answer your question? Let me then finish you with telling a parable, which I really like. I tell it often. Uh, this is uh, about um, uh, uh, an old man and a son. They live in a village somewhere in the mountains, and they have an old horse. And that's the most valuable thing they have. And some someday the son comes home, runs home, and tells the father that our horse is gone. It's lost. Such a terrible thing. Let's go look for the horse. And the father says... All right, let's go look for the horse. They look for it. They go up and down the trails around their, the hills, and they don't find the horse, and the son is um, anxious, runs back and forth, and can't find the horse. He's very upset. And, and then they come back, and he tells father, why are you not upset? That's the most valuable thing we had. And the father says, how do I know? Was it a good thing or a bad thing that we lost the horse? And then a few days passed, and uh, neighbors come in and say, Wow, your horse is back. It's in the meadow, and you're so lucky it brought it with it uh, two wild horses. Now you have three horses, and two of them young and strong, and such a good luck. And the father says, I'm grateful, I'll take the horses, but how do I know? Was it a good luck or not? And then uh, some time passes, and uh, again a neighbor comes and says, horrible thing, your son fell off one of those wild horses and apparently broke his leg, and such a bad luck. Uh, the father brings home the son and takes care of him the best he can, but still seems undisturbed. And, and, and he says, I don't know, was it a good thing or a bad thing? And then sometime later, uh, again, news come in that um, there is a war, and military came to the village to gather all young men to the to the war. And the neighbors say, "You are so lucky! Your son has a broken leg, and you are will stay home." Um, and so the moral of the story that things happen all the time, and because of our cocoonish attitudes. 
we categorize them as, as uh, positive for ourselves or negative for ourselves and we get uptight or we over get overexcited and we don't really know in reality. And so if we could live by those notions of fundamentally I'm good and whatever life does to me is workable, it's not good, not bad, it's something that I can work with, I can deal with, it's okay. I can apply my intelligence, my energy to do the best I can with the circumstances I have, rather than keep wishing for different circumstances. And that's, and if we all do it together and help each other, that's the enlightened society we wish for. On this note, unless you have something burning to say, we can close. Thanks, Vacan. And thank you all for listening to the podcast. Uh, tell your friends about us. Email us at podcast at shambhalanyc.org. Your questions, comments, suggestions. If you live in a different city, there's probably a Shambhala Meditation Center near you. Look us up. But if you are in the New York City area, our weekly Dharma gathering is every Tuesday night at 7 o'clock. You can hear these talks live and in person. Meet your fellow uh, meditators. It's a good time. Okay? Later.